You are listening to the Financial Clarity for Doctors podcast by Finity Group, LLC, where we discuss the pertinent financial planning topics facing physicians and other medical professionals. Discussions in this show should not be construed as specific recommendations or investment advice. Always consult with your investment professional before making important investment decisions. Securities offered through Cambridge Investment Research, Inc., a registered broker-dealer, member FINRA, SIPC. And now, here are your hosts, Rochelle Vanderzanden and Corey Janoff. Welcome back to Financial Clarity for Doctors, everyone. This is Rochelle Vanderzanden here. Corey's with me today, too. Hey. He always is. <laughs> um, today, we're going to talk a little bit about some retirement distribution strategies and talk a little bit about other income strategies in retirement as well. I know for a lot of our listeners, you're a little younger, not in retirement quite yet, but this is relevant for you as well because how you save along the way will kind of determine what buckets you have access to in retirement. So when we're talking about these income strategies, it's all dependent on what you have available to you and in, in terms of like what do you have to take out. So we're going to talk a lot about, you know, those different buckets and how you can use them in retirement. But then also, you know, you can think about like, if that's a bucket I want to use in retirement, let's make sure I've got some money in that bucket. So that's one way that you can use this in your own plan. So specifically, there are ways that you can live on your nest egg in retirement that are optimal and tax efficient. So we're going to talk a lot about taxes and how that affects all of your investments when you're retired. Um, Because really the goal is, you know, you've saved all of this money. Now we want to use it. We want to enjoy it. We want to live comfortably in retirement without worrying too much. And if you if you do this all in a very tax-efficient way, it just stretches your dollars farther. So it's going to be really, really helpful when you are retired. Yep. And then just to frustrate you a little bit, things are going to change between now and when you retire. Laws, rules, regulations, tax treatment of things. So there has, a million percent, yep. <laughs> there has to be some element of flexibility and being content with, with just the unknown and not knowing, you know, like, am I going to, like the, the, the trillion dollar question, am I going to run out of money? Do I have enough? Well, we think so, but no way to know for sure until after the fact type of thing. Um, so, so there is a, a little bit of a leap of faith with all of this stuff and, and financial planning is, is really just a, a big guess. You know, we want to make an educated guess, but but it, it's not so much about being precise today as it is about just being less wrong tomorrow. Because we know whatever we lay out now, whatever plan we put in place, it's not going to be accurate. Like it could be kind of you know in the ballpark, which is all we're really shooting for. Let's try and you know get the trajectory going and have an idea of where we stand, and then let's just narrow the range of potential outcomes as time goes on. Um, but yeah, a lot of this stuff, like, I can guarantee you, we're going to redo this episode 20 years from now, and it's going to sound a lot different than today. I can yeah. promise. Yep, and I think philosophies change over time, too. You know, like, we're going to talk about some standard, like, rules and financial planning, and those those things will adapt over time as well. But, you know, it's really helpful to, to know some of these things now because, you know, the more, the more you know, the more you can prepare and just make sure that you have some flexibility to build in a little bit of a buffer because that's how you prepare for the unexpected is you just give yourself a little extra wiggle room so that if, if things go unexpectedly to the worst direction, <laughs> we have – 
some buffer built into the plan. But, you know, if, if things go unexpectedly well, then obviously that's great. We have some more money to give away. We have some more money to live on. We have some more fun to have. Um, so we're going to talk about three different investment buckets. And then we're going to move on to some other types of income that you'll have access to. But just to start on the investing side of things, when you retire, ideally, you've got three different buckets in terms of like when you need money. So we're talking about time horizon here. So you have money that you need in the short term, like money you need next year or the year after, like a couple of years into the future. And really that money, we want it to be very, very secure. We want it to be in cash and cash equivalents, like in your bank account, in a savings account, generating some interest, maybe in some CDs or money market funds, maybe some short-term treasuries, like U.S., backed treasury bonds and that's really we want to have like a couple of years of those expenses in cash in case something happens in the market you know because the rest of your money will be invested in some way shape or form and if it is then it's subject to some market risk um because you know that kind of goes into the second bucket which is your medium term bucket and that's bonds and bonds are definitely more stable and more secure than the stock market itself but there's room for downward movement in bonds as well. And we saw that a lot last year a lot. Like bonds still dropped like, what were they at the end of the year, Corey? Like down 10%? I don't know. It depends which bonds you're looking at, of course. Right. But yeah, I think it was there. Uh, the aggregate index was down double digits, you know, 10 or 12 or something like that. Right. Which, you know, if you're invested money, you don't want to pull money out when it's 10 or 12% down. Sure, that was better than, you know, 18, 19% down in the stock market. But still, we don't want to sell at a 10% loss. So if we have some cash that we can rely on so we don't have to sell anything, if that kind of thing happens, then that's ideal. Um, but we do have this medium-term bucket that's invested but more conservatively in things like bonds. So for any money that you need in the next, like, let's say, three to seven years or so, you've got some money that is a little more secure. You know, It's got a little bit of time to, to recover if something does happen. And then you can sell those if a lot of times bonds do okay when the stock market's down. You know, so if you do need to get into some assets and the stock market is still down, we can sell bonds and, you know, ideally have some money to cover living expenses that way. And then on the longer term side of things, you have the stuff that grows. You know, you have your stocks, you have your stock-based mutual funds, maybe some real estate, things like that. And that money, like realistically, when you retire, if you retire at 60, it's not all money you need tomorrow. Like ideally, we are living for decades at that point. So we have some money that should be invested fairly aggressively because there's some money that you just don't need for quite a while. And so you want to be able to let that money grow and it's going to be invested in more aggressive things that can lose value, but that you can give a little bit of time to recover if it does lose value. Absolutely. And we're going to kind of talk about a number of different strategies here, a number of different ideas, kind of just throwing things out there. Some of them will maybe contradict each other. And if you talk to other advisors, like they'll have other strategies um, or, or maybe say things that might go against this. Like there is more than one way to do this. And even this bucket approach, like I've talked to some people that are like, don't even bother with bonds. It's, it's fixed interest. They're not going to keep pace with inflation very well over time. Keep a, a chunk of cash for your immediate term needs, put the rest in stocks, you know, let it grow. It's going to outpace inflation, which, you know, sure. Yeah. Statistically speaking, that works well, but not everyone has the intestinal fortitude to, to ride out the stock market roller coaster in their golden years. So this is kind of that, 
middle of the road approach, you know, we have the immediate term, the intermediate term, and then the long term stuff. Because because really, say you retire in your 60s, you know, inflation is going to be your biggest enemy. Cost of living is going to probably more than double between when you start retirement and when you finish retirement, to put it lightly. Um, so we need our investments to outpace inflation to maintain our standard of living over time. Unless you're you know, one of those super savers that just has way more than you need saved up, which is great. Then you can just ignore the rest of this podcast because it doesn't really matter what distribution strategy you use. It doesn't even have to be tax efficient because you have more than enough. Um, but but for most people, like we got to somewhat be strategic here. And there is going to be that little bit of um, you know, doubt in the back of your mind, like, do I actually have enough? That's probably the biggest challenge with working with retirees is, you know, trying to get them to spend money or and maybe that's the wrong way to put it, but like, there is a little bit of a fear. Like, do I actually have enough? Is this going to last? Cause you know, like I said earlier, we really don't know, you know, we could have a high degree of confidence, but you know, if you, you really just, you don't know with 100% certainty in any of these scenarios. Yeah, I think transitioning from earning and saving to just spending is really challenging for a lot of people. And it, it makes sense. You know, that's a that's a big mental leap to take to get there. Yeah. But I think the one idea with like, you know, having money invested and having like a cash bucket is that, you know, if the stock market does really well. You, you kind of cash in on that when it does really well and you replenish your cash savings. So when investments are up, we draw money from that and that will help you feel a little bit more secure. Like I've cashed in a little bit of this money. Like I have more in my savings now that I can easily access. Um, and I think that that can be really helpful. And if if the market does go down, you have cash on hand and you can tell yourself, I have a little bit of time to let this ride and let this recover. It's okay. I don't need this money tomorrow. And I think that can be really helpful mentally as well. So some of this, you know, is very helpful for efficiency and tax planning, but some of it is also helpful for your mental well-being when you're retired. And I think that's what you were alluding to, Corey. Just, you know, you, you have to have a little bit built in just to keep your sanity. For sure. And these three buckets, like they don't necessarily have to be three separate accounts. It could all be within one account even, but just kind of the, the mental accounting of it. All right, here's some the safe stuff for the short term. Here's the you know stuff that can potentially grow to outpace inflation over time. All right, so different spending strategies, withdrawal strategies here. So there's kind of two, maybe there's more than two, but kind of two schools of thought. There's like this, the straight line spending. All right, this is how much I need to spend each year to support my living expenses and, and fun and travel, whatever. And we'll just assume that adjusts for inflation over time. Pretty simple and easy. And then there's, you know, the, the what some people call the smile strategy, where literally just draw a smiley face on a piece of paper. You know, you have the, the kind of U-shaped smile, where early in retirement, you're, you're, you're going to be spending more money. You know, every day is a vacation, party time, let's have some fun, go places, do things. We have that freedom. So we're, we're going to be spending more in, in early on in retirement. And then as we age, that spending gradually tapers off, you know, ignoring inflation uh, in this you know, example, but your, your spending will gradually de decrease as it becomes more burdensome, difficult, exhausting, insert adjective here, to 
to travel and go places, you know, Let, let's not go into the city to go out to eat. It's a pain in the butt. I don't want to fight traffic. Don't want to deal with parking. It's, you know, exhausting, whatever, you know, getting on a plane, it's not going to be desirable after a certain point in, in time. Um, so, you know, spending kind of gradually decreases as you become less physically able. Um, and then, you know, at the very end, generally it'll spike with assisted living costs. Your spending will spike. You know, it's going to be a lot more expensive those last couple of years of life unless you're fortunate enough to just kick the bucket one day after a very long, fun life and, uh, and not have to deal with the nursing home or anything like that. Um, so... Yeah, then when it comes to like how much can we actually live on, it, it, it can vary. There, you know, one um, you know, school of thought that's often referenced or pointed to is, is the 4% rule, the safe withdrawal rate that was, I think, originally um, coined by William Bengen and then, you know, was, was again further compounded upon in, in, I think, what's called the Trinity Study at Trinity University. But basically it says... You can safely withdraw every year 4% of your initial portfolio balance per year adjusted for inflation and have a very low risk of running out of money over a 30-year-long retirement. There's a 95% probability that your money will last at least 30 years. So if you have a million dollars, 4%, 40000 a year, that's how much you can withdraw initially, and then you know that 40000 can increase with inflation over time. Um, which is great. If we want to say, hey, what's a, a safe amount I can take out of my portfolio? There you go, 4%. The problem with the 4% rule is this is like, you know, statistical probabilities here. I think if you ever took statistics class, the bell-shaped curve, you know, two standard deviations, 95% probability. So there's, you know, only a 5% chance that you're going to run out of money. In the majority of those simulations, you're not only not going to run out of money, but in like over half of them, you end up with more money at the end of retirement than when you started retirement. And I think in like a quarter of the simulations, you, you double your money or more than double your money. Um, so that's like the ultra conservative withdrawal strategy. And then I think later on, Bengen even updated it and said, in reality, you can probably take out four and a half, five percent of your portfolio w with a pretty low risk of running out. Um, but again, it's gonna it's gonna vary by what's going on in the markets. You know, when you retire, like if you retire at age 55, you're probably gonna need a, a smaller withdrawal rate in percentage terms than if you retire in your 70s, just because you know you're you have a longer retirement to support starting in your 50s versus starting in your 70s. You, you know, you're, you're assuming you die at the same age. So, um, you know, that 4% rule kind of falls in line with that fixed spending strategy where in reality, we might need to have somewhat more of a dynamic spending strategy in retirement and, and allow for a little bit of flexibility based on, you know, what our portfolio balance looks like at, at, at any given time. Definitely. Yeah, I think it, it's really interesting because I do feel like there's this, I don't like this push to preserve capital. And that might not be necessarily the goal for everyone. And obviously, like, we don't want to run out of money. So there's also just this fear, like, what if we run out of money? What if we run out of money? But there are going to be some income sources, likely for most people, even if you do run out of money. So that's one thing that we'll talk about, like, at the end of the, the episode here. But, you know, yeah, it really depends on what your goals are and, and how much risk you're willing to take on. So that's an important 
conversation to kind of have with yourself and with your financial advisor if you have one when you retire. Like, hey, this is, I understand that I'm taking on a certain amount of risk if I have a 5% withdrawal rate. I am okay with that because I would like to spend more money now. I'd like to see my family have that money now if really I have enough to give them that money now because this is when it would be really helpful to them. Like all of those kinds of conversations are really, really relevant. And some of it's also contingent upon the portfolio risk level. Mm -hmm. Like if you just don't like seeing the ups and downs of the stock market, you want to be heavily invested in treasuries, which right now are, you know, short-term treasuries paying 5% or so. Um, great. We, you know, we might not be able to take as much out of the portfolio if we want to invest ultra conservatively, but if we're willing to take on more risk and ride the roller coaster of, of the stock market over time, odds are your portfolio will, you know, grow over time and outpace inflation. And, you know, therefore you can afford to spend a little bit more just because you have those invested dollars growing for you over the long run. Um, but even that is, you know, when does when do those growth spurts happen and when are the, the periods where it goes down? You know, at what point in time are we withdrawing funds from, from those accounts? So it, it is, it is going to be, like we mentioned already, somewhat unknown, and you got to have some level of flexibility here, ideally. Yep. One thing about like the dynamic spending strategy is that you can choose to spend more money when the market is up. You know, you can be like, oh, last year was a really good year. My accounts look pretty flush. Like, <laughs> let's take that big trip we were waiting on because we weren't quite sure if we could do it or if we should do it. You know, like, and then if the market's down, maybe we tighten our belt a little bit. We're like, okay, I'm a little worried about my portfolio balance. I don't want to take out my 4% this year. I want to, you know, just deal with the cash I have on hand. That'll be enough. And then I will let the, you know, let the stock market ride, let it recover a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So good exercise, kind of go through your account, bank account statements, credit card statements, kind of get an idea of what your spending is. What are our mandatory fixed expenses? You know, utilities, groceries, mortgage, if we sell a mortgage, property taxes, insurance, etc. And then what's the discretionary spending, the fun, the travel, the entertainment, going out to eat, things of that nature. And, you know, all right, what, you know, in a normal year, here's how much we can spend in a good year. You know, if market's up 20%, all right, maybe we can stretch that budget a little further and go on that trip to Europe and fly first class, um, you know. Market's down 20%. Our portfolio's down with it. All right, maybe we're, we're going hiking for our, our fun within <laughs> a, a, dry, a short drive of the house and not staying in hotels. So, um, so again, you know, if you can be flexible and, and be content with being flexible, that will allow you to you know, splurge when times are good, cut back when times are, are not as good, um, and, and just finding you know, what activities suit you that, that can you know, fit in both of those different uh, spending scenarios. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think the other consideration that will be huge for most retirees is taxes. I think obviously it's important when you're working as well, but also when you're you're retired, like it's it's kind of a really big part of how long your money will last because if you have to take out more because you're paying taxes on all of it, that's a big deal. So when you are retired, you will very likely have investments in three that are taxed three different ways. So a 
big part of your investable assets will likely be pre-tax money. So that's all of the money that you put into your 401k or your 403b that you got a tax deduction for. It's all the money that your employer put in there. If you have matching dollars, like right now at least, every dollar that your employer put in there will be taxable when you take it out. So whatever your tax rate is at the time, like that's what you're going to pay on those dollars. And then you will likely have at least a small Roth bucket. And that's all the money that you're saving right now that you're paying taxes on right now. That's in a retirement account where you would withdraw it and you don't have to pay taxes on the, the gains when you take it out in retirement. So you may have like this little bucket or maybe a bigger bucket if you saved really aggressively on a Roth basis where you don't have to pay taxes on it at all in retirement. And then you may have a fairly large investment account that's outside of work that's not a retirement account. And those investment accounts are usually subject to what's called capital gains taxes, where you just pay taxes on the growth. And if you hold that investment for long enough, it's usually a long-term capital gains tax rate, which is usually lower than your income tax rate. And it can be very low or even zero, depending on what your income tax rate is. So that that can be really, really helpful to, to know what all of those tax brackets look like. I think especially for retirees that are first starting out, it can be really helpful to have an accountant like help you figure out like exactly where you fall in those tax brackets, how much you can take out without paying taxes, all of that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, you want to, there's like this whole tax thing where you have marginal income taxes. And I don't know that everyone necessarily understands that. But basically, you know, your first chunk of money that you have that's considered taxable income, you don't actually pay taxes on. Like there's a, a big chunk that you just get to deduct from your taxable income that you don't pay taxes on. And then there's a small chunk above that where you pay maybe 10% taxes, at least right now. And then there's a little chunk above that where you pay 12%, a little chunk above that. So it's like every additional dollar that you take out, you get to pay that next tax rate on. And the more you take out, the higher that next tax rate is. So, you know, it could be that you don't need a lot of money in retirement. So maybe your taxable income is fairly small, but if you're taking out quite a bit because you're sustaining a, a pretty, you know, significant lifestyle, it could still be that you're paying a good chunk of money in taxes if you have a lot of pre-tax money. Yeah, taxes. Um, mm -hmm. and, and a lot of the accounts that you have available to you in retirement will be dictated by what you had available to you when you were working. So like if your employer offers a 401k, that you can max out, which is 22,500 this year, um, versus if they don't offer that, you know, that's going to be a big difference in the pre-tax bucket versus the capital gains, which is, you know, any regular investment outside of work. And then like if you're at a private group and you're a partner in the practice and, and, and the group collectively decides we're going to max out all the profit sharing uh, option for the 401k for the partners, which you know, in total, you, in, in that scenario, you get $66,000 this year in your 401k or 73.5 if you're age 50 or older. So that's huge, like a huge difference, 22,000 versus 73,000 potentially, like, or, or 66,000, um, you know, it's 30 if you're employed and age 50 and up versus 73. Um, you know, that's a big difference between pre-tax money versus capital gains money that you'd be socking away. Also the Roth bucket. Uh, some employers allow you to do the mega backdoor Roth, which I think we may have touched on briefly in previous episodes, but it's where, you know, backdoor Roth IRA, I think you're all probably familiar with that by now, but 
some employers allow you to do that through your 401k at work where you can make after-tax deposits in addition to that 22,500 employee salary deferral um, and then those after-tax dollars can be converted to Roth. So we have some clients putting 30,000 a year into a Roth bucket through that through that avenue through their employer. So like if you're in that boat, if you're doing 30,000 plus your 6,500 to the backdoor Roth IRA, you know, you're getting 36,000 a year into a Roth versus someone else might only be getting 6,500 or potentially zero if they have other pre-tax IRA accounts, like a simple IRA at work, kind of getting into the weeds here for you. But like we're talking someone with five times as much Roth money in retirement versus, you know, another person that's going to drastically change your tax brackets in retirement. Um, you know, two completely different tax scenarios. So pros and cons, you know, more taxes paid while working versus more taxes paid in retirement. Um, but, but yeah, it's not like you can just decide, here's how much I want to put into each of these buckets. You know, a lot of it is dictated by what's available to you through the employer. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, we can get caught up in the weeds on what taxes look like right now. And it, it's important just to realize, like, it, it it's not going to be the same when you're retired. It's really not. But I think when we're thinking about tax-efficient withdrawals, it's important to know, like, how much can I take out of my investment account, my brokerage account, and not pay taxes on it? Like those are the things you're going to need to focus on. So right now, if you're in a 12% income tax bracket or lower, you don't pay capital gains taxes. So if that was the scenario for you, you'd be like, okay, let me like make sure I fill that back up and I don't pay any capital gains taxes on any growth that I don't have to pay taxes on. So those are the things that you really want to focus on. Or let's say you know, you're early on in retirement, we have some income or some, like, you know, maybe we have a little bit of social security income. We really don't need to withdraw from our investment accounts because we have that cash savings we're living on. And, you know, it could be that you could do Roth conversions. You could literally take money from your pre-tax retirement account. You don't even need it yet, but you can convert it into your Roth IRA and pay $0 in taxes on those conversions up to a certain point if you don't have any other income that you're paying taxes on. So anything like that, anything that you can do where you're literally being like, oh, I could pay taxes on this or I could just do this and not pay taxes on it right now. Like those are the things you're going to be want to be really well aware of just to make sure you take advantage of all those little little brackets and buckets and all that fun stuff. Yeah, and the Roth conversion tax free would be you, you wouldn't be able to do very much before you start getting into the tax brackets. But like you could, you know, fill up the. 10, 12% income bracket, and, you know, that would be roughly 90,000 a year uh, married filing jointly and get that converted to a Roth if you're living on your cash. Um, or, you know, you could extend up to the 22, 24% bracket depending on, you know, your appetite. I think the 24% ends at like 360,000 or something for married filing jointly. Um, but like there's strategic ways where, you know, we talked about if you're in the 12% bracket or lower, there's no capital gains taxes. So, you know, and for married filing jointly, that's roughly, the cutoff is roughly $90,000 of adjusted gross income. So just ignoring standard deductions even here, um, which would extend things further. But let's say you want to live on 150000 per year um, before taxes. You know, there's a way that you can do that and really only pay taxes on, you know, 50, 60, 70,000 of dollars. So, like, hypothetically, let's say this is the scenario 
pull 60,000 out of our pre-tax accounts, which is taxed as income. We pull 35,000 out of our Roth accounts, which is tax-free. And we take $55,000 from our taxable brokerage account, which you pay capital gains taxes only on the investment earnings from that bucket. So let's assume of that 55 that we pull from our taxable account, half of it is what we contributed, our cost basis, and half of it is investment earnings. So half of 55 is what, 27,500? So we'd pay, that amount would be what's subject to tax. So going back to our tax bracket, if we fall within the 12% or lower, no capital gains tax. So 35,000 from the Roth is tax-free. We have our 60,000 of income from the pre-tax bucket, plus 27.5, that gets us to 87.5. We're still below the cutoff for that 12% bracket, so that 27.5 is going to be tax-free. No capital gains taxes owed on that, because our income is still falling within that 12% federal bracket. And we're assuming, you know, all of the dividend and capital gain distributions from our investments are part of that 27.5, but... Um, you know, you add it all up, 60 plus 35 plus 55, you know, it adds up to 150, but we're only paying taxes on 60,000 in that scenario. So that's what we're talking about, tax-efficient withdrawals. Now, it may not work out quite that way where we can literally avoid taxes on two-thirds of our money in retirement, but it potentially could. Um, you know, it might be a, a smaller number, but there are ways to be strategic with it to where you're not paying tax on all of your money in retirement, or at least at, at income level tax brackets, um, you know, capital gains. In, in you know, if you just get a, above that 12% number, you're only paying 15% federal in capital gains tax, so it's really not a, a big tax hit to you. Um, yeah. I think one important thing is that state taxes obviously vary a lot. So like this whole conversation is like federal taxes because that's what applies to everyone. But depending on where you live, you, you'll also have to deal with that state income tax thing too. Um, with the pre-tax accounts, you know, we have to take money out of them eventually. So that's one thing with those accounts. So any like 401k that's pre-tax, any IRA that's pre-tax, 403b that's pre-tax, all of those accounts they're called required minimum distributions. And this may be something that you haven't even heard about before because it's not relevant if you're still saving money. But at a certain point in time, the IRS will say, hey, we gave you a tax break for long enough. You have to start taking money out and paying taxes on it now. It's time. And there's a, a calculation based on your age that tells you exactly how much you have to take out. It's a function of your age and also your investment account balance. So it's basically just a certain percentage of your overall invested assets in these pre-tax accounts. Um, for most people, this will not kick in until age 75 as the law is written now. So for anyone born after 1960, then your required minimum distributions won't start until you're 75, which is a long time. You know, that... you. You don't have to take them out for quite a while. But then at that point, just be prepared to take money from those accounts and pay taxes on that balance that you withdraw. Yep. For those of you that were born before 1960, if you're not already subject to RMDs, it, it, it'll start at age 73 for you. Um, but some of you might already be taking RMDs because it used to be a 71 and a half, and then they changed it to 72, and then this year was the 73, but yeah. Again, it's going to change over time. 
yeah, who knows? It may be, you know, older than 75 by the time people get there. Yeah, so who knows? Um, we kind of already talked about the Roth conversions briefly, but this is something where, especially if you want to leave money to your heirs, it's not so much, oh, let's convert to Roth now so we can avoid taxes later, because it's like, well, I mean, you're paying taxes one way or the other. It's more so, let's leave an inheritance that's tax-free to our kids or grandkids or whomever, versus leaving a... Uh, a pre-tax IRA where they have to pay income taxes on it. So, you know, let's let's fill up a couple tax brackets with Roth conversions. If we don't need all of our money, convert some of those pre-tax accounts to Roth um, at a relatively low tax bracket, and then, you know, when whenever you pass away, your 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 kids inherit that money tax-free, and um, you know they don't have to pay taxes on the distributions. So that's a, a neat little strategy that, that some of you might consider if you're wanting to leave some money behind. And this is especially helpful for people if you have heirs that are in a really high income tax bracket and you're not because you're retired and you just don't need as much income. Like you can pay taxes at your tax bracket instead of them having to pay taxes at their super high tax bracket. Um, especially because if they do inherit like pre-tax money, they have to take it out over 10 years. Like that's a rule. Well, again, as the tax law is written today, they have to take it out over 10 years. So it's not like they can wait until they're retired and their tax bracket's lower or something like that. They can't. Like they've got to take it out, you know, over the next 10 years after after the the person that passes away has left it to them. And I guess like you could do it for yourself. Like let's say you're kind of coasting into retirement, maybe working part-time in the last handful of years and you have a really large pre-tax bucket but not a lot of Roth money because, you know, you're, you know, in your 50s or 60s now and Roth accounts didn't exist until about 20 years ago. Um, like maybe you decide, "Hey, let's let's here's you know, I'm making $100,000 a year." Let's you know convert a hundred thousand of Roth. We're still in a relatively low marginal tax bracket. That way, I'll have some more tax-free money available to me in retirement, so I have some added flexibility, uh, you know, down the road as as taxes evolve and change. We'll we'll have that tax-free bucket available to us. Mm-hmm. Yep. In terms of like other income outside of investments, there's options. I think. Corey, like you were mentioning, some people don't retire immediately all the way and not earn any income. And that's a really powerful tool is if you've decided, I would like to work part-time. You know, I don't want to work 40 hours a week every week, but I like my job. You know, I want to go in once in a while. I want to see a few patients or do some research or something like that. You know, if you work part-time and earn some income so that you just don't have to touch your investment dollars, that can allow your investments to continue to grow. And that can be a really powerful way to kind of coast and slide into retirement and, you know, make your dollars stretch a little farther. So that's big. Yeah, especially if you're like getting close to retirement and aren't, and, and aren't fully confident that you have enough. It's like every extra year you work, every extra dollar you earn is equates to at least another dollar you can spend in retirement. So like if, you know, if you earn a dollar at age 65, that allows you to leave some money invested in your portfolio that could, you know, grow to $2 by age 75. So, you know, multiply that by whatever you earn, you know, that allows you to, like Rochelle said, stretch that nest egg further and uh, can be a really beneficial way to approach retirement. You know, we don't have to, you know, quit working cold turkey at age 63. Maybe we, we slow down at age 58 
and keep working part time until 68, um, and you know gradually reduce and reduce and reduce, and, and you know that'll allow you to really stretch those dollars further. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's other sources of income that we can use that allow us to either you know, reduce the amount that we need to take from our investments or or maybe allow us to just let our investments sit for a little while longer. Some some people may have pensions. We're not going to talk about that a lot in this episode because it's not applicable for everyone. But there's potentially like a monthly dollar amount that you're basically getting from your employer that they invested on your behalf. So that can be a good resource. For some people, you know, Social Security will be a source of income. It's not going to be a big source of income for most of you. And it usually makes sense to let that kind of ride until at least your full retirement age, which will be 67 for most listeners, at least how it's written now. And then, you know, if you wait until 70, like that benefit will be a higher dollar amount. So if you're fairly healthy, it usually makes sense to kind of like let those dollars ride so that you have a higher monthly benefit at a, at a later age. Um, And the nice thing about Social Security is that the way the system is set up, you get a monthly benefit, you get a little cost of living adjustment if there's been inflation, and so you you have this source of income that supposedly, how it's supposed to work, will not run out. And I think that there's a lot of talk about Social Security not being super stable. So it's very possible that whatever benefit you think you're entitled to, maybe you don't get as much as you thought you were going to get. You know, maybe we get a 60% benefit or something like that. But there will be something for most people when they're retired, some source of of revenue or income every month. And who knows, it might be a significant, it might be cover a significant portion of your living expenses. Like if you've working as a physician, you're maxing out your social security tax every single year. You do that, you know, for 30, 40 years of a career. I mean, there's a good chance in retirement, you know, in, you know, today dollars, like as an individual, you'd probably be getting, you know, four or 5,000 a month almost, you know, if you wait till age 70, if you're married and your spouse has some, or, or at the very least, even if they didn't work, your spouse can collect a benefit that's for, simple purposes, roughly half of what your benefit amount is. So, I mean, you could be getting, you know, at least five, 6,000 a month in retirement. If you don't have a mortgage, you're not a big traveler. Like, I mean, what's, uh, you know, how much, how much are you eating? Like, what are you, how, what are your utility bills? Um, yeah, that can go quite a long ways if you don't really have any fixed expenses, kids are out of the house. So, yep. And I think, you know, that's a big if, not having fixed expenses. A lot of people may have a mortgage when they retire, yeah. and, and I think that could be challenging. But, yeah, if you don't, or like, you know, if by age 70, maybe you retired at 60 and maybe you had a mortgage then. But maybe by the time you hit 70, you don't. Like, you paid it off. You took care of it. Like, yeah, you could be in a good spot to have that be a big portion of your expenses at least. There's a few other income options, especially for people that are – a little more risk averse like annuities have a really bad name but you can take a chunk of your investments move it into a new annuity and you know for simple math sake you now have a monthly income amount every month instead of having that money in an investment you've shifted some of that investment risk to a company that now gives you a monthly benefit so you're you know you you have that built in instead of just worrying like, what's my investments doing? Depending on what kind of annuity you have, because obviously there are some that take on risk as well. But it can be a good way to just structure some additional income so that you're not so worried about using your investment revenue even. So some people, 
can dig into their investments a little bit if they know, hey, on the back burner, I have this other thing that I know is not going to run out. And that can make people feel more comfortable using their assets, which is helpful. Yeah, very similar to a pension. An annuity is an insurance product. So you give an insurance company money, they promise a certain benefit to you. Now, it's probably not going to be as large of a benefit as you could likely get if you kept your money invested in traditional assets. But you know, no matter what happens in your other investments, that annuity is going to keep paying you income for the rest of your life or for whatever you know minimum time period you signed up for. So for those of you that want a guaranteed income stream in retirement, um, you know, that can, can give you a little peace of mind and, and allow you to sleep better at night. Not for everyone, but, but can be, uh, I think it, it can make a lot of sense for some people. Yep. Another one, um, that used to have a really bad rap for good reason, but a lot of regulations changed since 2008 to now where it's a lot more, um, or a lot less predatory, a lot more suitable for some folks, still not considered very often i think part because of the bad reputation but um but reverse mortgages um you know you can use your home equity i guess it doesn't necessarily have to be a reverse mortgage you could just do like a cash out refi or home equity line of credit um you know but a reverse mortgage this would be a, a, an ideal well, i don't know if ideal is the right word but a, a, an option to consider if if you don't really care to pass your house down to future generations. Um, you know, bank can give you money now. You can stay in your house as long as you want. And then when you pass away, house gets sold, mortgage balance gets paid off. If there is more equity in the home than there is a mortgage balance, then your heirs would get whatever the remaining value is at that point. Um, but that could be a way to, to generate some more spending money for you in retirement by tapping into your home's equity and they make them in you know several different flavors now like where you could kind of do the cash out refi type model where they just give you a lump sum um, or you could almost open it like a line of credit where you draw from it as needed um, and it collects interest and then you know whatever that balance is when you pass away it gets repaid to the bank when the home is sold um, but uh, you know, you could also use your home, you know, if you need to move into the nursing home, okay, let's sell our primary residence and that'll pay our nursing home um, expenses for a few years at least, hopefully. So uh, that, you know, usually we don't include home equity in our retirement projections, but it can be a, a nice, you know, backstop for a lot of you. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think in terms of like, nursing home, assisted care, like end-of-life expenses. Planning for long-term care is a big part of this too, and it, it's something that's hard to plan for because it's unexpected. You know, you could spend zero time in a, in a facility or you could spend five years in a facility or even longer than that. So insurance can sometimes be appropriate for those kind of unexpected things that we're trying to plan for, um, especially for people who have assets to protect but not enough assets to be like totally unconcerned about it. <laughs> so if you have a boatload of money, we're not terribly worried about end of life expenses. Um, if you don't have enough money, 
it's also like eventually you run through all of your assets and now we have Medicaid that kind of kicks in to help support people in those situations. It, it's not ideal at all, but that is part of the system that's kind of set up to, to care for people right now. But I think that long-term care insurance can be really helpful, especially if you've, you've got a chunk of assets that you want to protect. And how it works is usually you get it when you're fairly healthy, you know, maybe a little bit later in life when this is becoming a bigger concern to you. And, you know, they can pay like up to, it really depends on how it's structured, but usually it's like up to a, a cap. They can pay a certain portion of that expense every year. But if if you don't have something like that, if you have a house, you may ha- have to sell your house to pay for those costs. So there's a lot of things that that can kick in at that point that are not very predictable. But again, like if you have a, a lot of assets, Sometimes you can, you're fairly insulated from that. You know, you, you can afford that, although it's very expensive. <laughs> yeah. Oversaving solves a lot of the concerns around all of these topics, running out of money, paying for uh, the nursing home. Um, yeah. You know, if you have more than you need, it's not really a, an issue anymore. But that means you could have retired sooner or you could have had more fun during your you know, younger years. So we, maybe that's not ideal either, but, um, but yeah, regardless, there's Take many, yeah, there's many ways to, to draw from your assets in a strategic and tax efficient manner that can help make that money last ideally longer than you. Um, but a lot of this, you know, if you're already in retirement, you know, we got to play the hand that we're dealt and there's still flexibility and options with those, uh, with what we have, but if you know you still have a lot of runway before you get to retirement, you know these are some things to start considering now, so you can tee yourself up for success in retirement. So you have some flexibility, you have some options, you have the different tax buckets available to you. Um, if you're the you know nervous Nelly type, worried about running out of money, then you know, maybe we do consider something like an annuity that'll provide that guaranteed income stream in retirement. Or if we'd prefer to have more tax-free money than taxable money, let's try and stuff more into Roth accounts or do Roth conversions if possible. Um, so a lot of considerations here. Threw a lot at you today. One of our longer episodes, um, but retirement income distribution planning is a can be a beast of a topic. And it's kind of fun. It is. It's like thinking about, oh, how are we going to spend all this money we saved? <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. If you have questions, you know where to find us. Let us know if you want us to talk about something specific. We're always looking for ideas. See you next time. We would love to hear your feedback and suggestions for future topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing podcast at thefinitygroup.com or by following Finity Group on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube at Finity Group LLC. You can follow me on Twitter at Corey Janoff CFP, Instagram at Corey Janoff, or on LinkedIn under my name, Corey Janoff. You can follow me on Twitter at Rochelle Finance or on Instagram, Vanderzanden Rochelle, or on LinkedIn under my name, Rochelle Vanderzanden. Check out all of the podcast episodes on thefinitygroup.com slash podcast, on our Finity Group YouTube channel, or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to check out our Financial Clarity blog at thefinitygroup.com slash blog. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Financial Clarity for Doctors by Finity Group, LLC. 